0: Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Kieschen, I write the Necker Substack, and this is my conversation with David Senra, the prolific uh, host of the Founders Podcast, which I'm sure by now many of you know. I've recorded this conversation with David um, this past summer, summer of 2022, but it's pretty timeless, and uh, at the time it was recorded for Compound, that's withcompound.com, um, so you can find a full transcript of the conversation there. Um, I'll link to it from the, from the Substack, but I thought it would be a good idea to also share the audio. I mean, David is the most high energy person you can run into and his podcast is absolutely fantastic. So if you want to get a taste of that, um, keep listening. Um, We'll talk about a lot of his work and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Let's just jump right into it. And then you can get back to, to doing the, the focused and simple, simple work that you aspire to. You're saying that the the mission of the podcast. You, you kind of think like, well, it's both for founders, but it's really for anybody doing something difficult. And and I think a lot of times I'll listen to an episode, and there are lessons, but there's also this element of you can relate to this person who finds themselves on a similar journey and who's doubting themselves or makes mistakes or like has setbacks. And um, obviously, the challenge is so you don't read the biography for the people who where it didn't work out, right? Like you always point that out. You, you, mm-hmm. Somebody that this life was amazing enough that somebody actually wrote a book about it. Um, but I think a big element of of um, what makes your podcast really interesting to people is like, you can relate to the journey and how hard it is. How do you think about that element?
1: What I'm fascinated by is, and I try to bring this up in the episodes where it's like, they're, they're, they're always trying to do something. And then there's no story that you're going to read where it's like, okay, this man or woman had an idea. They woke up, I'm going to do it. Uh, They start doing it and then they achieve the goal and like it's a happy ending, right? It's like I have this idea or maybe like a vague idea of what I want to do and I just keep trying a bunch of things and then I take one step forward, maybe two steps back. And so what I'm always fascinated by is is like these these alternate paths because, again, these people, most of the people I study are dead. Like these are dead. They're not living anymore. And if and in some cases, like if even if they're alive, they're extremely old. They're in their 70s, 80s, 90. They're talking about stuff that happened in the past where everybody listening is still going forward in life. And so I always try to think it's like, okay, let's pause here in this person's life. Right. Uh They just they've been let me use James Dyson as, as an example, because I'm obsessed with his autobiography. He has this fantastic autobiography called Against the Odds, an autobiography by James Dyson. Mm-hmm. And it's shocking to me how so few people, especially entrepreneurs, haven't read that book yet. He, a lot of people know because he just wrote another autobiography. But he wrote that autobi- autobiography as like a seventy-year-old man uh, that owns a hundred percent of you know a, a multi, maybe ten or thirty billion-dollar company. So that right. got a lot more attention. But he wrote an autobiography when he was in like his forties, right? At the time, Dyson wasn't a thirty billion-dollar company. It was doing like three hundred million in revenue, which is fantastic, right? He had one product, which was the, the, the cyclone vacuum, and it was in one country, which was in England, right? Yeah, yeah. And the reason that biography is so fantastic is because it is all struggle. It is, I have this idea where I'm pushing around this crappy Hoover vacuum. It's not sucking because the bag is now uh, is blocking the suction. So I'm ripping yeah. out the bag. I'm like, this is poorly designed. Yeah. I could do something better. And then from there, he has 14 years of struggle. He builds 5,127 prototypes. He mor- mortgages his house. Uh, he's some, and some days doing all these uh, experiments. He's climbing into bed at night, covered in dust, crying at how painful what he's trying to do. So it's 14 years, 5,127 prototypes before he has a, a vacuum of his own design that he owns completely that he could start selling to the public. And so there's so many examples in that book where I try, and, and in a lot of books where it's like, okay, pause here. We know at year 14, he's going to have success. What about year three? Yeah. What yeah, if he yeah. stopped right here? One, that makes perfect sense. That is the logic. In many cases, it's the logic. This is why it's so difficult. It is the logical decision. Yeah. He should have stopped there, but he didn't. But he didn't. And so that, what's the difference? Okay. The version of James that didn't stop and he kept going, right? We see where that winds up. He's built one of the most successful businesses owned by one person that in human history. Meanwhile, we don't see like you just pointed out the alternate path. Like the, there's a for every one person, like a, for every one version of James Lace that continued, there's ten thousand yeah. that I, I, I can't take the pain anymore. I quit. And then maybe there's another ten thousand that persevered and they got to year six, but they quit. And then they quit at year nine or ten or eleven. And so that's why you see Steve Jobs, who gets to the end of his life. One of the last things he said, you know, after him himself having thirteen years of struggle between the when he got kicked out of Apple and when he goes back, right? Yeah. Where he's like, "Listen, people say that you have to have a lot of passion, and it's true because your the passion pushes you on because it's illogical. It is difficult. It is logical to quit, but if you love you, if you love what you're doing, and you you had you truly believe." What you are making, the world has to have, and there is no plan B for you, you're not going to quit. The passion and the love you have for it, it's just like a human relationship. Think about like the ups and downs of a friendship or the ups and downs of a marriage. Like any kind, anything that's going to take place in a human's life over a long period of time is going to be fraught with conflict. That's just part of our nature. And so the love you have for that person, the the, the amount of shared history you have, pushes you forward. It's like, okay, this is a temporary bump in the road. We're just going to keep going because it's important to us. Yeah. Um, and I think that same love is apparent in history's greatest entrepreneurs where I, I covered the biography of this guy named Sidney Harmon, who if you ever get into like a luxury car, you'll see like speakers that say like Harmon Cardin, right? Mm-hmm. And he winds up writing this fantastic autobiography. He's like 80 or 90 years old. Like I forgot how old he is. I, I think he's his 80s when he's writing it. It's called Mind Your Own Business. And he... He had, you know, in that biography, in a couple hundred pages, he's distilling 50 years of company building. Like, think about how many people are around. You're in our age, right? None of like we haven't even been alive for 50 years. This dude had been trying to build companies and successful and unsuccessful for 50 years. Imagine what he knows. Right. And he gave the best description of what I feel is like the founder's role. But also where you see in history's greatest entrepreneurs is like the founder is the guardian of the company's soul. And you cannot be the guardian of your company's soul unless you love it. And the, what's fascinating is, like, I, I read a bunch of biographies on Edwin Land, Enzo Ferrari, mm-hmm. Steve Jobs. Uh, uh, there's, they talk about their products the way you would describe your lover. Yeah, it's not the same as I made a toaster. Here's the toaster. No, it's they describe it like they're in love with what they've done.
0: Yeah. This is actually, I mean, this is super interesting. And it brings me, though, to another point, which is something that you do that I think is very unique. I mean, I think very few people will read multiple biographies of the same person. And I find it also, and you made a comment on a a podcast that I listened to recently, where you talked about the difference between autobiography and biography. And I've run into this Myself, like for example, Sumner Redstone, like you read the autobiography and like he'll, he'll give you his perspective and it's obviously biased and then a biography has like a very different take on it, but you, you made the point that an autobiography can be a little bit more direct and, and kind of give you um, a window in somebody's thoughts so like you read what how many bios biographies on, on Edwin land what why like tell me about what happens when you get these different perspectives and how you think about biography versus autobiography and like why do you keep reading a book another book about the same person like just tell me about that
1: that process. it's not only that i read the same multiple books of the same person In edwin land's case i've read five biographies of him yeah i spent the last two weeks reading rereading three of those so it's just like i when I find people I'm deeply interested in people I think that are going that I want to influence my thinking and my approach to work and life mm-hmm. and everything else it's like i that's just how I am like i have to i i have like an obsessive personality as you can imagine where mm-hmm. it's either zero or a hundred It's either like I'm totally disinterested or I'm all in and I'm gonna read every single thing. This is also why it's dangerous for me to um to like watch to get involved in like other forms of media. Like I got Mm -hmm. super addicted to Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. and not only did I read all the books, I found the TV show before I found the books. And so I I was like, this TV show is amazing. And so I'll watch the episodes over and over again. I read all the books. My wife caught me in bed one night where she's waking up. It's like, I'm reading the the family history. Like I'm studying the family trees of all the different (laughs) families by flashlight. Like that's just, I've always been like that. I don't know why I'm like that. (laughs) Just like, so, if I find if I'm like super into like Steve Jobs, right? Which you can have it's all subjective, but if you have a list of history's greatest entrepreneurs, let's say you have a top five list, if you could even do something, Steve's on that list. Like, th- that's not debatable. He like he made incredible products in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and the 2010 right before he died. And he had this idea is like when he was 18, 19 years old, I want to build great products, and he did it until he died. And in so many different areas, it's remarkable. And then even after having a decade in the middle of his career of intense struggle. So with Steve Jobs, this is like, not only have I read individually, probably 10 or 12 books on him, but then he, in every biography, this is why it's so freaking powerful. In every biography, they will tell you who they studied. People that were so good at what, think about like to even get onto Founders Podcast, you had to be so good at your work that somebody wrote a book about it. Like, what the hell is that? Like that is the the, the smallest percentage of any human of human beings that ever lived, Right. But what's remarkable is that if you were so great at what you did, that somebody wrote a book about your life, inevitably, those kind of people all spent time studying the people who came before them. So they will tell you, hey, this person influenced me. This person, I started to study this person. So not only did I read 10 or 12 books on Steve Jobs, I tracked down all the books on the people he talks about. This is my hero. This is another person I took. I have an idea from and there's like so far, and I'll do more. There's like 39 episodes in the archive that are Steve on Steve Jobs are on Steve Jobs heroes and influences. And so I don't know, I can't answer your question, like, why did I do that? Other than mm. I find it interesting. And like that's what a lot of people ask me, like, oh, how do you decide like what book to read? Yeah. Whatever I, I look, I have hundreds of unread books, right? <laughs> and I just look and I'm like, who am I most excited to learn about right now? Yeah. I don't have a master plan. And sometimes like it may have made more sense. Like, why didn't you just group all these books together? Like, you know, maybe the do 10 straight episodes on it. It's like, that's not like, there's something else that I read that'll affect how I think about something two weeks from now or two months from now. I'm like, Oh, now yeah. I'm more excited to, to, to read or to learn about that. And so with Edwin Landon in, in particular, it's just like, okay, I just made the case that no matter what your list is, you have to, if you're talking about history's greatest entrepreneurs, entrepreneur, Steve jobs has got to be on it. And yet when you go, when you, you <laughs> There's interviews where Steve's in his 20s and there's interviews that he's giving to Walter Isaacson right before he dies and he's talking about the same person. And he's saying, Edwin Land is my hero. He said something about building a company at the intersection of art and technology. And he's like, I like that intersection. You know that because if you ever watch Steve Jobs give presentations, he'd put that, he'd put like a signpost on it. They use the word, um, I think, technology and and humanities or technology Mm. and liberal arts, I think, is on the, the actual sign. And it's just like, okay, What did Steve see in this guy where he discovers it in his 20s because he he got to meet Edwin Land was in his 70s when Steve was in his 20s. And as he was building Apple the first time, he got to meet Edwin Land three times. And then he also talks about in these interviews, you can go and read it like his famous interview uh, in Playboy magazine in the 1980s, where he said, like, visiting Edwin Land was like visiting a shrine. Again, this is not like they talk about their products and their work in a in a very romantic way. He didn't say, Oh, it's great, the guy's cool, he's really smart. He compared it to a religious experience, like visiting a shrine. Pay attention when they use words like this. That's like I don't like I don't just read casually, right? I like I literally think about like what does that line mean? Can I go down and chase what they actually mean by that? If I don't know who that person is, let me go look up that person real quick before I continue this paragraph. I need context here. Right. To actually mm. understand what he's trying to tell us. And so very, with his actions, he's telling us, hey, this person grabbed a hold of me when I was young and his influence held on to me till the day I died. It's irresponsible for me, who is my main goal is not to have the biggest podcast in the world. Right. My goal is simple. I want to have the best podcast in the world on the history of entrepreneurship. And I can't say that I, and I can't do that or I can't say that I do that. If I don't go and chase these things down, it's Steve is too important to entrepreneurs, even if they're not in the technology sector to not study. So let's go back and find Edwin Land. And then you start reading about Edwin Land. You're like, oh, I love him too. He was completely obsessed. He had this idea for working in uh, having a great scientific. Uh, he wanted to have a great scientific discovery that was unique to his own. He starts working on what soon turns into Polaroid when he was 17. And he works on it through various uh, like variations of the same idea until he's 70. Who the hell runs a company for 50 years? Yeah. Who does that? In especially in our day and age, Frederick, where it's like everybody's super distracted. It's yeah. like there's this weird, um, and you know, so think about it. like half my day is spent reading biographies of history's great entrepreneurs, and then half my day is like just talking to friends that are founders that listen to the podcast, right? And there is this weird, like, mind virus in the entrepreneurial uh like industry per se, where it's like, I'm going to have an idea. I'm going to start up. I'm going to scale up and then I'm going to sell. And then Mm -hmm. I'm going to do that over and over again. And then I'm like, and inevitably the the question turns is like, okay, well, who are your like entrepreneur? Like who are the entrepreneurs you look up to? Who are your entrepreneur heroes? And they start listing off people that literally worked in the same company forever. Yeah. So why? I don't understand. Are are you learning from these people or not? Because no one would have known Walt Disney's name if he started Disney, sold it five years later. Uh, no one would know Jobs' name if he never if he just got kicked out of Apple and then disappeared, right? No one would know Enzo Ferrari's name. If I mean he worked on his thing about Enzo Ferrari is another person I bring up over and over again. And again, a lot of these people I admire for how they, they approach their work, but I don't want their lives in the sense that Enzo Ferrari had one focus his entire life, and that was Ferrari. Uh he probably didn't care about another human being other than his, himself and his son. It's highly likely. And I've read three biographies on him, but he worked on Ferrari every day for 60 years, seven days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day.
0: That's insane. It's, it's just mind boggling. Um, And and to your point, very different from kind of the typical venture backed startup where you build it and then
1: your idea is to, to take it public and then sell, and then do the, do the next thing.
0: Well, you Um, could
1: because Polaroid was venture backed. uh, Apple was venture backed. It's my issue is not, Like if you're going to boot, I don't care if you bootstrap, if you raise money, what I'm interested in is like people that have found something they love to do and they want to do it for a long time. Because I mean, think about like, you've studied the history of finance way more than me. And you're, I've told you, me and you get along because we do similar things, but I think you're a way better researcher than I am. And so this idea of like everybody in, in that's an investor understands the power of compounding, right? Compounding interest, compounding money. My point is like knowledge compounds too. Imagine going back and trying to talk to Warren Buffett and everything he knew at 35 compared to what Warren Buffett knew at 80. Yeah, That's not the same person. And so I'm trying to study like the, the best of the best, the people that are completely obsessed. That's fascinating to me. And so like what I happen to know, like I've read 272 biographies of entrepreneurs so far. I have a unique set of knowledge there, right? It's going to pale in comparison to what I will know two decades from now three decades from now so that's what i'm talking about i was like i don't care what other people do it's none of my business frankly it's i don't understand why you keep wanting to jump around Mm. where all the info like you're giving away all the gains that aren't going to take place for another decade or two decades from now and the amount of knowledge and skills and same thing for skills like you're a much better entrepreneur with 20 years experience than you are with two interesting
0: yeah, no, I I totally agree that that a lot of things compound in life. Whether right, it's not just capital, but knowledge, relationships too. Where um, people people underestimate that. Um, all right, there's there's a bunch of things to jump off on. Of. W- one thing talking going back to all of these connections right between people and how they influence each other. Um, obviously, we're dealing now with kind of you know the internet and before that software and the and the PC. But one of the things that you're able to do is kind of look at all the different founders as a as an industry kind of comes into, um, like is born, right. And how they approach things. And, and I think you did, um, it's not a series, but you did a bunch of people in automotive, right. Yeah. And, and then for example, in, in retail, you also point out, right. Like you have sole price, it's from Senegal, Cologne, Walton, Bezos, how, how these lineages develop and people constantly study that. So I'm curious how you think about, um these industries that today we don't like today when we talk about founders it's mostly like people in technology but you study people like in in retail in in automotive when it was still a growth industry like what are the lessons from people in dealing with these industries that today you look at and you're like well this is just how it is right like you you don't think of it as like a place of of innovation or or disruption as much
1: I'm fascinated by the birth of not only new companies um new industries like i've done a bunch of like the like the railroad industry in the late 1800s in america has a lot of parallels to uh the early days of the internet right and what's fascinating is like you see the same personality type over and over again and i think studying the birth of the industry when it's not at all clear how it's going to turn out is fascinating so like the example i did like i don't know i read like 12 or 15 biographies on early american automotive company founders and it's It's the same story as the, if you study the early days of the internet or technology in and around Silicon Valley, where it's like, okay, one, they wind up all knowing each other, right? Mm -hmm. And the only thing that might be different now is like, usually at the beginning of an industry, there's like a, they're all centered in like the same geographic location, right? So obviously technology is in Silicon Valley, uh, Detroit was the center for that even like the the supercars like the race cars that happened like later in the 50s and 60s mm. uh you know ferrari new bugatti uh they all knew each other and they were all in this like sense like this area in fact ferrari says it's really important because he says he feels geographic uh er- different geographic areas develop certain psychosis for certain industries and he's like where i grew up in italy we had a psychosis for racing cars Everybody there was into racing cars. That's all they thought about. That's the set they developed in that way. I couldn't have made Ferrari anywhere else is basically his, the point he was making there. And so when you think about like, uh, Henry Ford's also a really fascinating person. And again, I have to repeat this. Like there's a lot of people that you would ask me, like who are your entrepreneurial heroes? Henry Ford's one of them, but not in the personal domain. They're mm. usually super flawed people, which is also heavily influenced my decisions I'm making in my own life is because like you have all these smart, driven people let's it's safe to assume that every single person i have read about is smarter than i am i 100 percent like they are definitely smarter than i am and yet you see all these smart driven people make mistakes they usually over optimize uh their pr- professional life to the detriment of everything else they destroy their pr- personal lives they destroy their health they have these weird uh in henry ford's case he's like super anti-semitic and all these other weird uh like deviations of his hatred for like the finance industry, you know? Um, And so I learned from that. I was like, okay, what if, if all these people are smarter than me, what's the chance that I am like, it's highly likely I'm going to make the same mistake. So knowing that's like, okay, don't, I have to put barriers on myself. Right. A lot of that is just like, I'm relentlessly focused. I will not do anything else. I won't allow myself to think about anything else, but making the podcast, I'm not starting another company. I'm not running a fund. I am reading books and making podcasts. I don't give a shit about your other opportunity. Like that, I have one focus. I found what I want to do and I'm going to do it for an excessively long time, right? That is important to me. And the reason it's important to me because if I start filling my life with all these other things, then my health is going to be destroyed. My, I'm married and have kids. I'm not going to be a shit husband. I'm not going to be a bad father. I'm not going to enjoy, like I'm going to also have fun in life. There's a lot of founders that get in their life which is like, I didn't even have fun. They could be as rich as, as rich, richer than 99.99% of the people ever lived. And they didn't even have fun in life. So that's another lesson. But going back to Henry Ford. So like, I like his approach to company building. I like the way he thought about, he had a one, he had one idea that was completely different from everybody else's. Cause at the early days of the, the car industry, it's like cars are for rich people, his partners, his first two companies failed, right? Which is very common. Enzo Ferrari's first company bankrupt. Walt Disney's first company, bankrupt. How many attempts at bat? You could say that Steve Jobs had two or three failed attempts. Let's say he had two failed attempts before he actually gets to why we know him today, which is everything that happened from 97 until he died, right? That's why we know him. Um, so what's what's fascinating is like he had this idea where it's like all right the the industry had this idea. It's like you build you build small volume, six thousand, eight thousand dollar cars, which is excessive, right? Because the Ford the Model T, which which uh obviously was his main idea. You know, they got down down to like four hundred bucks, then three hundred bucks, then like two seventy five. So, so a lot cheaper than what they told him to do. And so everybody's like, "No, Ford, like you you build it for rich people." And Ford's like, "I want to make the the world's first car for the everyman, and that is going to re- first of all, that doesn't exist. Two, I I have one idea, and that's the fascinating thing. Like, you only need one idea." Mm-hmm. Um. This is very important today's Age of Infinite distraction. I need to like take a minute just to elaborate yeah. on this idea. Uh, the greatest entrepreneurs had one idea, and they, they built everything around that one idea. There might be things that spawn off of that idea later on. There's other businesses that, that can grow out of that, other business lines, other products, but fundamentally, they start with an idea. and And Henry Ford had an idea. It's like, I want to build an easy, reliable car that the average the person working at Ford can actually afford. And that was unheard of. There was no like, there wasn't a thing like that. And he's like, I don't know how to do it. I just know that this is the idea that drives me, and I'm willing to do the work necessary to learn the skill set required to do that. And that becomes obviously the he had to invent. I mean, he's not only did he invent the Model T, but he invented the more importantly the manufacturing process to the scale needed to get that car low, which didn't exist at the time to get to get the uh, the volume up so the price goes down, right? But what's interesting is like, there's three people like that. I think more people, everybody knows Henry Ford, but there's two other people that are really important. Like General Motors, still massive companies to this day, right? How many people know the name of the founder? I talked to entrepreneurs, all nobody. And if they did, they learned it on founders, Billy Durant. So like Henry Ford comes in, Henry Ford is just like, I got to get the hell away from the farm. This is the yeah. fascinating part. It's like, not only do they know each other, they all come from different experiences and then they had different strategies for building a car company. That's really important for founders to know is it's like, there's not, there's more than one way to win. Right. And so think about Henry Ford. He was, he was like, I got to get the hell off the farm. I, this is terrible. He goes to the city. He starts to become a machinist. He starts working on steam engines. And then he's like, you know, most of the cars of the day, they were built by steam engines or electric engines. Right. And he's like, this doesn't make any sense. Steam is terrible for a car. And he's like, I'm going to try to make an internal combustion engine, which is like, he and then he shows that idea to Edison because he idolized Edison. He wants up meeting Edison. He tells Edison, who's a much older man and way more famous, for Ford. At this time, he's having this conversation with Edison. Has no money and no fame, no no notoriety. Right? Twenty years from that meeting, he's going to be the richest person in America. He's going to own by 1919. He owned Ford Motor Company 100. He owned a, he bought out all his investors. It was a private company. It'd be like owning you know a multiple billion dollar company 100 today. So he he meets with Edison. He explain and remember Edison is electricity. <laughs> and he explains his idea for an internal combustion engine. And Edison says something that changes Ford's life. And he says, That's it, young man. You have it. Keep at it. And so the next like, you know, five, 10 years of struggle, he remembers what Edison said and it like help help him persevere to do that. So that's that's how Ford approaches it. That's his idea. Hey, I came from steam, that doesn't make sense. Let me do an, an internal combustion engine. And then once I figure that out, let me produce in such a volume that everybody can afford it. Billy Durant came from horse carriages, right? His idea is like I'm not going to do Durant Motors, right? Which is what Ford's doing. I'm not going to do just one car. He had built this vertically integrated carriage company for horses, and he had he started the company, started making a bunch of money, and then he he just he's like, okay, my carriage company successful, goes and buys a bunch of other carriage brands, put them under one umbrella. He ran the exact the exact same playbook at the early days of GM right? He was running for horse carriages. And so that leads me to the third person. Completely, again, Billy Durant had a complete, he came in from a different area, had a completely different idea than Ford, still was successful. Then you have Henry Leland, who's who's just a complete badass. Henry Leland is the founder of Cadillac. He is a generation, if not two generations older than almost every other American automotive founder, right? He is 60 years old when he starts Cadillac boards in like 30s at this point i think Durant's maybe around the same age right so he's not only does he start cadillac at 60 he starts lincoln motors which he named after his hero abraham lincoln at 70 so cadillac was the first technically the first commercially successful american automotive company ever made which is really fascinating because like you could sell cars your cars can be loved but usually they're like they, they couldn't figure out the finances they could they could make a, a successful product but maybe not a successful business henry mm. leland because he was older and had more experience was able to do both and where did he come into this from right he was a machinist he had learned at remember he's six years old he was the one that introduced interchangeability mm-hmm. right uh which is helps in the mass production of everything now but the, especially the mass production of cars back then and he learned that because when he grew up the the forefront of technology at american history at that time right they're they're fighting wars not only are they doing this push west for manifest destiny the american government needs to mass produce pistols and samuel colt henry leland worked for samuel colt so the ideas that he learned in the mass production of firearms he then shows up in detroit and starts applying them to automobiles and so then what's fascinating is like henry ford has a question he goes to see uh henry leland billy durant mm. has a question he go, he's like the wise old counsel with a lot more life experience and he's like i read his biography it's called the master of precision he had insanely high just like steve jobs just like I land just like Enzo ferrari insanely high standards of quality for his product like obsessively high and so his whole thing is like i'm not building the every car for everybody i'm not building uh a bunch of different brands under one company umbrella he's like i'm building the the best luxury car available and so he put all that into cadillac eventually he winds up selling for a good amount uh to billy durant and billy puts that and i think buick and another i can't remember the other brand those are the first like his foundation for building gm and so what i just explained there it's like those things same ideas happen over and over again there's people that all different backgrounds. They have their own idea, their own personality, and the important part is like whoever you are, and whatever is important to you, put that into your company. Like, don't shield, shy away from the eccentric part of your personality because your personality, the the founder's personality writ large, is the foundation and the culture, the beginning culture of the company.
0: That's so. I, I love that. Yes, um, and I and I especially think culture is is becoming so important because it's so hard to do uh, once a company is distributed and you're no longer at the same um, point. Um, I wanted to get back to something that you mentioned earlier. Um, you mentioned it in passing, right? You say like the, we're in the age of infinite distraction, right? And you're, and, and you're, you you kind of have to say no to things. And like, you're doing the podcast, you're not raising a fund. You're not selling a course, you know, writing books. You're like, you're, you're doing one thing. And you told me once about the, the mute button. And I just think it's something to to highlight on, on its own, kind of like, because cause I'm always wondering, like, what are the lessons you specifically are learning from these founders and applying to your own life? And it seems like kind of focus and simplicity is something. And I'm just curious, like, how has the podcast affected you?
1: So something I take away from my own work is like, it's very apparent um, that, the people that get really good at what they're doing to, to the case where you could say like they're the best in the world at what they do um, they don't allow themselves to think or do much of anything else. And so like you and I have in, in our past conversations, the, the DMS, the emails, the phone calls that you and I have had, it's like, we, we've talked about Henry Singleton. You've sent me some fantastic research, which is why every time I bring up Frederick to other people, it's just like, he like, he's a better researcher than I am. Like this dude is in the library finding stuff on microfilm (laughs) like that is just a different level and so what like singleton had an influence on me steve jobs obviously had an influence on me really all of them but i like the fact that singleton just it says in i read both the outsiders and then the book disenforce and then i've read the stuff you sent me i have other people listen to the podcast have sent me uh like entire zip files on like research hard to find research on singleton what i like about singleton is again i'm not really worried about capital allocation like he was Mm -hmm. i respect his focus where he's just like i don't care what everybody else thinks in my industry i'm going to sit in my office and i'm with there's a there's a great line in his book where it's just like he sits in his office in his corner office with his apple II computer just just thinking up strategies right and these strategies are usually counter to what other people are doing at the time and it speaks to his focus and in fact like so Ar- Arthur Rock really affected my, um like Arthur Rock is one of the most famous VC, venture capitalists, mm. and he he invested in Intel, Apple, Teledyne, which is Singleton's company. And he says something that's fascinating. He says, Henry Singleton reminds me of De Gaulle. He has a singleness of purpose and a tenacity that is just overpowering. That one quote, and you never know when like a quote hits you and that you it, like it, mm. it embeds in your mind and never lets you go. That quote made me read a seven hundred page biography of Charles de Gaulle, which I did a podcast on because it's like, okay, Singleton's one of the people I most admire. Uh, not only is he one of the people I most admire, but one of the people I most admire most admire him. So you got like Charlie Munger saying, "Hey, Singleton's the, literally they were like neighbors or something." Singleton is the smartest person I've ever met. Uh, his returns were utterly ridiculous. You have Warren Buffett saying stuff like, "Hey, uh, it's a crime! It's a crime! A crime that business schools." don't make it mandatory to study this guy that you could take the top 100 business school graduates and add up their record. And it's not nearly as good as him. And then you start digging into his life story. It's like, wait a minute, he didn't start his company. until 44, ran it for 20 years and then just dipped out uh, to, to work on his ranch. Like, how do you not like he, he, he gets a so-called late later start in life, right? It's his first company, if I remember correctly, does it for 20 years and then puts up one of the best records in American business history. And so When I read stories like that, I'm like, well, what is he doing that's different than everybody else? And a lot of that was just focus and concentration. He wasn't concerned about investor relations. He wasn't concerned about courting press. He wasn't concerned about what you were doing. He had the rare ability to mute the world, which is what you and I have talked about in the past. This idea is like, I'm going to mute the world and I'm going to do my own independent thinking. And I've done the work necessary to trust, to to have the ability to trust my own judgment. And once you do the work necessary to trust your judgment, Mute the world and focus on what you're doing. I know, and I, that that's kind of like what I've been, like this path, my own path I've been on the last few years, which is like, I want to make sure I can trust my own judgment. Uh, that The research and the reading I'm doing for founders has greatly enhanced that judgment. I don't have to have, I could live the, the rest of my entire life never having one original idea. As long as I've mastered the handful of ideas, right? That I see as reoccurring themes in the history of entrepreneurship, I will live a life, a, a fantastic life, a life better than 99% of the humans that have ever existed because these, it's not only knowing this stuff, it's actually applying them. Yeah. And so do you answer your question? It's like focus and concentration are hugely, uh, they're, they're recurrent themes in history of entrepreneurship, right? I just saw this fantastic video um, where Johnny Ive, who obviously worked very closely with Steve Jobs, was talking about one of the main lessons that he learned from Steve Jobs And he's talking about this after Steve died. And he's like, listen, Steve was the most remarkably focused person I have ever met in my life. So Johnny works with Steve almost every day. We just got done talking about how you got to put Steve on your top entrepreneurs of all time list. And this guy who is having lunch with him damn near every day is saying, he is the most focused person in your life. That should tell you, hey, do an audit of your life. Am I focused? I'm assuming if you're, Listening to founders, if you're reading the writing of Frederick, if you're reading this, right? Like you're the person – there is a certain personality that they're not going to have a content life unless they are really good at what they do professionally, right? That doesn't mean you have to – every waking hour is dedicated to that. That's not the, mm. what I'm talking about. But it's just like there is personality type, and I'm one of them, where I cannot – I will not be satisfied again if I get to the end of my life and I'm not really good at what I do professionally. It's going to be a balance, right? I told you before that ed thorpe out of every single person i've read
0: yeah
1: read about to me ed thorpe got the closest to mastering life where he's able to not only to make a lot of money build great businesses uh but he also was a good father he was a good husband he took care of his health he looks fantastic go watch the tim ferris episode with yeah. him on Love youtube there's no one no one's going to look at that guy and be like that guy's almost 90 um and so this idea where, where johnny was saying he's like steve was the most remarkably focused person i ever met in my life this sounds simplistic. This is still Johnny talking, but how it, it, it shocks me how few people practice it. It is a struggle, Johnny says, to practice focus. And he says something was fascinating. He's like, listen, focus is not something that you aspire to. Mm. You don't decide on a Monday, hey, I'm going to be focused. It's a every minute questioning. Why are we talking about that? That is not what we're working on. This is what we're working on. And his whole point that he learned from Steve is like, You can achieve so much when you truly focus. And what focus means is saying no to something that with every bone in your body, you think is a phenomenal idea. You wake up thinking about it, but you say no to it because you're focused on something else. There are ideas that I've been presented, whether it's starting a company, investing, whatever it is, that I'm sure would have made a lot of money. And they were good ideas. But it's not Founders Podcast. I will deal with that later if I ever get to it. And if I never get to it, that's fine because I found what I love to do and what I'm obsessed to do. It just happens. It's an obsession disguised as a podcast that has to function as a business. It is not – I don't approach it the way – like I do it as a hobby. And so – why am I going to take something where I already know I love to do? I do naturally because I've been reading, you know, all the time since I was a little kid, since I could read. Like, I know it's something I could do for a long term. I I know I'm going to be reading books 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. I'm still going to be reading. Uh, I fundamentally believe that podcasting is a major technological revolution, which is extremely important. Like, could you go back to, like, go back to the, the, uh, the, the career of Henry Singleton, if you've actually studied the career of Henry Singleton, you know that like he built his career. He had an early faith that, hey, semiconductors are going to be the dominant factor in future electronics. He arrived at that conclusion. This is important. He arrived at that conclusion, right? When that, that fact to him was a fact was still being debated by others. In that industry, it was still being debated. And he's like, nope, this is going to be the dominant factor. This is what I'm going to go all in on. And obviously he diversifies because he's got this giant conglomerate later on. But I feel like I see that I'm not copying the what. I'm copying the how, right? Mm. I don't want to build a conglomerate. I'm not interested. Like, I'm not building anything in the semiconductor industry, in the defense industry. I'm not doing anything that Henry Singleton did. But I could take how he did his approach to business and apply it to mine. So when I read that, I'm like, oh, I have I had an early faith in podcasting. I was obsessed with podcasts way before uh, I started one. And I still feel, I was like, I feel, one, we're in the very early days where people think it's already saturated. I adamant, uh, like, completely disagree. But I also think that on-demand audio is the best way for entrepreneurs to learn when they're doing other things. I think reading a book is the best way to learn. But I can't read a book when I'm driving, can't read a book when I'm walking, can't read a book when I'm washing dishes, when I'm at the gym. But on-demand audio is a superpower for entrepreneurs because why? It's a superpower for other people, but especially entrepreneurs, because entrepreneurs, right, are building structures that can they were and from which they can profit from their learning. Right. You're the stuff. If you come up with a good idea, like think about Singleton. Let's go back to him. He picked up Alfred Sloan's book. Right. Everybody. This is Alfred Sloan's running GM at the height of GM. I think this is like 1960s. He puts out the book. That book was read by everybody. One of those people were Henry Singleton. And in that book, he's like, Alfred Sloan's like, hey, GM almost went out of business because we didn't have a solid financial base. The way to get a solid financial base is to have either ownership or a direct relationship with some kind of financial institution. So Singleton used that idea. He's like, oh, okay. I'm going to take that idea. I forgot the name of the insurance company. You probably, you know it. I wow. don't remember, but yeah, okay. he
0: starts but buying he, into insurance and
1: yeah. He uses, the, the, the point being, and we could fill it in later if you want, He uses Sloan's idea. He's like, I'm going to do that. And then he puts it to in his own way, puts it to work in building Teledyne. And he says, I did this because Sloan told me to do that. And so he's not copying. He's not building GM. Right. He's building Teledyne. He's not copying the what. He's copying the how. Um, And so there's and in some cases like you could take a a bunch of different entrepreneurs and grab ideas from them but a lot of these ideas are contained within one person so focus concentration finding something you love to do trying to be really good at it uh getting people that can help you he had like think about who was sitting on singleton's board of directors he had claude shannon for god's sake he had claude shannon the inventor of information theory as one of his advisors like they this that these themes just pop up over and over again, regardless of the industry they're working in, where they're living, like in the world, and what uh, and what time in history they're living. So I, that's where, when I see these things, I'm like, okay, I'll just apply that to podcasting, and my business is so much simpler than a Teledyne or an Apple or anything anything else like that.
0: I love it. I I want to ask you something though, right? And you you've touched on this um, how. Um, some of these people are kind of their, their life is not in balance, right? Like it's all about work and then other things suffer. And occasionally on a podcast, you'll say something like, Hey, I read this book and there's the success of this person is really impressive, but I want to avoid this person or this kind of person in my life. And there's a saying, it like, Hey, if you want a friend on wall street, you know, get a dog. <laughs> and I've, I've, kind of, I've come across, you know, many examples where people are tremendously successful, but you realize the people around them, even the people who are part of their journey, right, who, who invest with them, like who are part of their firms, don't really benefit as much. And I feel like there's, there's different, like people have like an abundance versus a zero sum mentality, however you want to phrase it. So I'm curious, as you study, um, and people out there, not everybody's a founder, people pick co-founders, they pick bosses, right, they have to figure out who to partner with. Um, How do you think about the inverse of the lessons, right? Not just like the people you admire and who could be a hero, but also like, this is a person I don't want to like, like, how do you think about that kind of lesson from your, from, from your
1: work, the people you want to avoid or that you have to be careful around? So I have a rather cynical um, view of human nature. I think it's cynical and accurate, but I'm also weirdly like optimistic about my own future and, 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 uh, humans on an individual basis, if you're able to vet the people you have around you. Right. So reading a bunch of biographies, uh, the, the, my own experience in life is just coming from, you know, a family full of on both sides, like family trees, just all the, the mo- the worst traits you could possibly have in a family, whether it's like people ban- abandoning their kids, I'm not talking necessarily my parents didn't abandon me, but like, their family treats, aunts, uncles, grandfathers, great grandparents, all these people. It's just like alcoholics, drug abusers, child molesters, violent people, uh, drug addicts, overdoses, alcoholism. So you see like human my entire life I saw as exposed to examples of like exactly what not to do. And then I also had this weird uh obsession with studying history, right? Which I've had my entire life. And history is just like watching it's like the same thing an athlete does, right? You want to be really good at basketball, you watch game tape, or you want to be really good at boxing or whatever, like mm. you watch tapes of the people you're going to fight. It, and so studying history is just like watching human behavior. I'm watching game tape of human behavior all day long. And so it's, you know, it leaves if you study like what the true nature of humans is, it leaves a lot to be desired. And so Charlie Munger, who's also famous for, for reading hundreds of biographies and being obsessive about studying humans, uh, says the same thing. He's like, most humans are rat poison. And it's like you 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 have to be very careful around them. You should only be working with people you like, admire, and trust. Mm-hmm. And I think just reading, going to listen to Charlie's speeches on humans, reading his writing, reading Poor Charlie's Almanac, The Tao of Charlie Munger, Trent Griffin's book on uh, Charlie Munger. These are all good. These are things you know you could read in a, a week or two, and you kind of get like the synopsis of somebody that spent you know thousands of hours in their lifetime trying to figure out what are humans, what motivates them. You know, what what are they incentivized for? So there's and I see the same thing in, in, in these books where it's just like these people are ruthless, ruthless They're in, in some cases, even you could even say sociopathic or psychopathic. And the reason is, is that I don't read a, a story about that. and be like, oh, well, that person's dead. I have nothing to worry about. It's like, no, that personality type is was alive. Then they're alive today. They will be alive, alive in future. Like human nature is constant. And we seem to be blissfully unaware of the fact that human beings if you if you expose them to similar stimuli they react in very predictable ways um and so when i come across somebody that's completely ruthless it's like they have this goal whatever they're building if you like if you partner with them and you're uh like you're useful then it may be going around going like it may be beneficial to you right but the minute you stop being useful they will discard you
0: Mm.
1: And so my and so like when I see this, like okay, this is a problem that that appears over and over again. What is your solution, David? And I've the solution I've come up for my life, I don't care what other people do, right? This is just my own life, is avoidance. I don't want to partner with you. I don't want to chase money with you. I don't want to like be friends with you. I I'm like those kind of ruthless people. In some cases, unfortunately, ruthless people wind up giving like gifts to the world right? Henry Ford was a ruthless person. He was obsessed with one goal and one goal only. And he gave his gift to the world was like, try getting around before you had a car. You're on horse, you're walking, like that is a gift to the world. You know, somebody else probably was going to figure that out eventually, but he got there first. Um, And so when I see people like that are just, all they think about is like, they put dollars above everything else, or they're just, they're, you know, There, I know that I'm just a means to an end for them. I just avoid them. Um, Mm. Now, the inverse of that is I am very selective about who I spend time with. And I only have one good filter for this. And I think there might only be one good filter. And that is time. Time is the best filter. And so the people that I like, luckily, I, I work alone, right? I don't rely on anybody else. Now I've met a bunch of people that I like through the podcast that I've talked to for now, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30, 50 hours and they're, we have good relationships, but I know some of those will develop into even deeper relationships and some eventually time they'll reveal who they really are. And so when I'm not spending time working, right? Like the people I spend time with is like the people I've known for a long time. So my small group of friends that I know, most of the people I talk to on a regular basis, I've known for like 15 years, 20 years. You could fake being a scumbag for a year, two years, maybe even five years. You're not going to fake being a scumbag for 15 or 20 years. And in many of these cases, I I can't, I'm not, there's no, it's not a transaction. There's nothing I could do for them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, It's, we hang out and we talk because we like each other and we have shared experiences. I don't need 500 friends. Like I don't need, It's kind of like weird that I'm obsessed with podcasts because I'm a super introverted person. And part of me being good at my work is like getting publicity for my work. And that makes me uncomfortable. But I do it because I truly believe in what I'm doing. But I don't like I have no interest in like trying to achieve personal fame. I have no interest in trying to like go to all the events or all the part. Like I don't give a shit about that. And almost every single invitation I get, I turn down. Yeah, Because I've already figured out like I've done the work necessary to figure out like this is what I truly like to do. And those handful of things I truly like to do, I'm just going to keep doing them.